When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Verse 6, So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their father in time to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's a lot packed into this chapter, but the thrust here is simple. God was preparing his people for the battles ahead. And no, it's not about preparing them for the battle with swords and walls and spies. The decisive battles have to do with their faith in God. And even today, the decisive battles we have to face in the year ahead has to do with our faith in Him. So let's look at this chapter and let's see the answer to these three questions. What should we prepare? How preparation begins? And how preparation continues? Now, let's ask first of all the simple but necessary question. Why prepare at all? You may ask, is it the life of Christianity about faith? Which means that even though I don't feel adequately prepared, if God tells me to go, then I have to step out in faith, right? You're absolutely right. God needs no preparations at all to slay the giants. But it is you and I who need it. Those who know their own hearts well recognize that at any moment when we see the giants, we would rather retreat rather than advance. Deep down, we know that the mere sight of these giants makes our stomachs churn and our hearts melt in fear. The giant may be some serious illness, an unexpected loss, a catastrophic mistake, a tragic event, some new enemy, some new sin that enters our lives. Who knows what the giant may be for you and me? But you know that in the year ahead, there are going to be giants. And deep down, there is that fear, that uncertainty in us, that doubt in us. Now, Joshua and the people of Israel, they had an idea what they were about to face. 
Remember, 40 years ago, their parents in the same border sent out spies and they came back with a report that they had to face giants. And what did they do? They chose to retreat rather than advance with God. At that threshold of faith, at that crucial moment of decision, their hearts failed them. And now this new generation of Israel under Joshua, they were at that same border. They were, cro- they were about to cross that border. And the fact is, they were not that different from their parents. Because just a few chapters ahead, you already see some cracks forming in the nation's faith. The fact is, they were also weak, forgetful of God. At any moment, they were also vulnerable to astonishing unfaithfulness, just like their parents, just like you and me. Now, did they recognize this at that moment? I don't know. But we know that God knows. He knew their hearts better than they did. And He knows our hearts better than we do. And what does God do? Here is grace. Because God does not abandon them. God doesn't give up on them. And neither will God abandon you this year. Rather, God prepares His people, and He prepares them well so that they may advance against the giants. See, if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, you know that some of its stories are among the most exciting in the Bible, right? Who was not thrilled by the battle of Jericho, or when the sun was said to stand still? When we think of the book of Joshua, those are the stories we remember because There's spectacular victories, right? But wait a minute, we've been in the book of Joshua for four weeks now. Have we heard any of this stuff? Nope. And spoiler alert, neither will we hear it next week in chapter 5. Why? Because the first five books, uh, first five chapters of the book of Joshua is all about battle preparations. God is setting up multiple layers of preparation for his people. Remember, in chapter 1, God prepared Joshua to be a strong and courageous leader. In chapter 2, God prepares his people to be a strong and courageous people by sending them the words of Rahab, words about her faith, words about how God was fulfilling his promise already, quaking their hearts with fear. In chapter 3, God demonstrates His power to, the, to, to, to Israel by parting the Jordan rivers, demonstrating a power that can overcome any kind of giant. They just have to stick with Him. Then here in chapter 4, again notice, who initiates this? It was the Lord who said to Joshua, the Lord commanded this. He was making the first move. He was preparing Israel. Now, what does he do? We'll look into that later. But the point here is clear. God prepares his people because we need it. We absolutely need it. And unless we recognize that our hearts need that multiple layers of preparation, then we will never prepare well. And when we come to the threshold, when we come to the crucial moment of decision, 
we will fail. So we must prepare well as God's people, prepare well our hearts to trust in Him no matter what. And by the way, notice what is being prepared. What does God do? What does God do to prepare His people? God does not prepare His people to face giants by giving them swords and formations and tactics, although that would have been useful, right? God does not give them advanced technological weaponry, although that would have made their battles much, much easier. And even today, as we face our giants, God does not give us the modern versions of the sword, which is more money, more power, more health. That's not the main thing He does for us. Why? Because while those are the ones we want, those are not the ones we need. Oh yes, sometimes, of course, God in His wisdom and grace may give us the swords and the shields that we prayed for, but that's not the main preparation. That's not it. Because while swords and shields, they increase me and my strength to face the giants, right? But don't you and I need something more to face the giants? We need no one less than God Himself. So God intends to prepare us, not simply by developing our hands' fighting capabilities, but rather our hearts' obeying capacity. For the battle ahead is not won by might or by power, but by His Spirit. So we must prepare. God prepares us adequately so that we may trust in Him no matter what, no matter what, no matter what giants may be ahead. Okay, well, how, how, how can we begin? How does this preparation begin? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that even before we started to recognize and, and begin our preparations, God has already been preparing us. God is the first mover. God is the initiator. God was already doing something in us. In this instance, in the instance of the people of Israel, God begins by demonstrating a miracle for them. He parted the Jordan rivers. And we saw that last week in chapter 3. And notice one thing, by the way, about the Jordan River. Based on the geographical clues that the book of Joshua gives us, Israel probably crossed through a region that was south of Adam. Which is curious because by now we know that just to the north of that, it would have been much, much easier to ford the river. But God did not lead them to the easy path. God led them right into the difficult waters. And that's not the first time He did that, and it's not His last you may also find yourself being led by God right into the difficult waters. And that may be God preparing you for something powerful. Because notice, the Canaanites, it says there in chapter 5, verse 1, it says there, the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
See, the Canaanites, of course, they would know the Jordan River best. They live nearby it. It's just like people who were living in, say, nearby Araneta Creek, they would be very familiar with its waters rising and its flooding, right? They, the Canaanites, were very familiar with the Jordan River. And when they heard that Israel actually crossed through it, and they crossed through that part, that difficult part of the river, their hearts melted. Because this was no longer just Israel being resourceful or being witty or, or being smart. or not. It's not just good timing or good weather. This was something beyond that. This was an act of God. It was a miracle. For the Lord our God is a true God. He's alive and eternal, able, powerful, sovereign. And therefore, as we witness the powerful acts of God in the past, in the Bible, in our lives, as we witness all that, let it prepare our hearts to be strong, for our faith to be strong. Because He is the God of miracles. And He still is the God of miracles even today. And so in, even in the face of giants, we keep our eyes open for what God would do. We keep our faith persistent and our heart, hearts hopeful in God. For it is always possible that God would do the impossible right before our eyes. It is. But notice that incredible balance that this passage teaches us. Because on the one hand, we pray for miracles. We're persistent about, about our faith in God because He is the sovereign God, the Almighty God. But on the other hand, His people should never expect God to give them miracles whenever they ask for it. Notice what happens to the rivers of the Jordan River. After they cross, immediately the waters come crashing back down because the miracle won't stay up forever. And neither will it keep on repeating for them. Think about it. After they cross the Jordan River, Israel, as far as we know, would, this generation would never again see the waters parting for them as they, as they see another bottle of river. And later on, they would, see, they would see another miracle in the Battle of Jericho and the walls come crashing down. But after that, as far as we know, all the other walls of the enemies don't come crashing down. They don't see that miracle again. Why? Clearly, God was able to repeat that, but why not? Because God was teaching them not to trust in His miracles, but in Him, period. With the miracles or without the miracles? See, miracles, they are, yes, they are awesome displays of supernatural power, divine power. But they're more than that. They are also messages from God. They reveal something about what, who God is and what He's about. Now, in the case of the Jordan River miracle, what was the message? Well, here's what Joshua says. Joshua says, The Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Joshua is saying, just as God parted the Red Sea, so God parts the Jordan River for you today. It's a repeat. It's an encore of the Red Sea miracle. Because the message 
is that God who worked signs and wonders 40 years ago in the previous generation with your parents, with Moses, God repeats it today for you. Because even though your parents were unfaithful, God remains faithful to you. He intends to fulfill His promise that He made in the past. And He's able, He's sovereign. That was the message of the miracle. That's why in verse 14, if you notice, it says there, God uh, uh, exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. What's that about? Well, it's an exact parallel of what happened to Moses when the Red Sea parted. After that, God exalted Moses in the sight of all Israel. And it's the same message. The message is, just as God provided a prophetic leader in Moses to get you out of Egypt, so now God provides a prophetic leader in Joshua to get you into the promised land. See, God repeats the miracle. The provisions are repeated in order to affirm the promise, in order to affirm the message, the promised word of God. That he, who is the God of miracles, he who is sovereign, he intends to remain faithful and fulfill his promise for his people. And so as his people, it's not up to us when God would do the miracle again. Yes, we can hope. Yes, we can pray. But the promise is not the miracle. The promise is his word. It's his presence with us no matter what may happen. That is the message of the miracle, that He is supreme, and He's supremely faithful to us. That is the word, the message, the promised word of the miracle. And unless His people, unless we see past the miracles, unless, unless, unless we get out being hung up on miracles, and see past that and learn to cling on, to the promised word that the miracles are pointing to, then we will miss the whole point of God preparing us in our hearts to face the giants, no matter what, no matter what. And so we need to keep that message clear in our minds, make it fresh in our hearts every single time that we face the giants. How can that happen? you know as well as I do, that life will throw you storms and snow and that message of God will get buried and snuffed out. How then can this preparation continue in the life of faith to keep that message fresh and operational in our lives? Well, here's how God does it with Israel, right? God commands Joshua, take 12 men, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And as you pass through the dry ground of the Jordan River, take 12 stones. Those 12 men will take 12 stones and bring it to your first settlement inside the promised land. And what, what, what was it for? It says, these stones shall be a memorial forever for the people of Israel. Now, what's a memorial? A memorial, of course, is something that reminds us of something important. You know, for us today, it may be statues or, or holidays or even places that, that were named after 
certain historically significant people or events. It's to commemorate them. They serve as reminders to us and to the next generations of the significance of that to our nation's history, right? Have you, what's the point of a memorial though? Why, why is it a thing? Well, the answer is simple because we, as a human species, we are forgetful people. I mean, just think about it. Even something as personal and significant to you, like say your wedding anniversary day, it often slips our mind. It gets, it, get, it gets buried under all the things that are happening in our lives, right? If you try to think back, for example, of what happened in 2022, what were those significant events that we should remember no matter what? It would require for most of us some effort at least even to enumerate those things. And that was just last year, just a few weeks ago. Can you imagine then how much would be lost to the next generation? In fact, our memories are often distorted. It's biased. It's colored by what we, by, by how we perceive things. You know, my wife and I would often debate about what really happened, who did this, and when, where. Because human memory is faulty. It's, it's unreliable. And so God says, establish this memorial. Because if there's one thing that's even more forgetful than our minds, it's our hearts toward God. So God says, establish this memorial. Take those Jordan stones and make it into a Gilgal memorial to serve as a perpetual reminder. These stones, these pile of rocks were to contain a memory and they were to be an immovable reminder for, of the God who moved the waters. These were, these were supposed to be, to have that significant function in their lives. You know those holidays that we have, those many, many holidays that we have, and the places and the things that were supposed to be memorials, and that we perhaps enjoy those holidays, and, but many of us don't even know the names of these holidays. It's a nameless holiday. It's meaningless to us. God says, these stones were not to be like those holidays. Look, notice, it says there, these stones were to be highly personal to you. It says, what do these mean to you? It's a highly personal. It's significant to me personally, these memorial stones. So much so that it evokes the curiosity of my children. See, it says there, your children would ask you, what do these stones mean to you? Now, here's the picture here. The picture here is, in times to come, when, when there are new, the new generation comes who have never seen the Jordan River miracle, it would come someday. When that time comes, the people would still be going back once in a while to this Gilgal Memorial. And they would look at these pile of stones. But they would look at it solemnly and seriously. And as they look at it, it's as if some core memory is being resurfaced to their minds. And something in their hearts is being stirred. Their eyes would be looking at the stones, but they would be looking further off than the stones. 
as if they were transported once more out of Gilgal, right into the middle of the Jordan River. As the rivers were parted, as they were walking along muddy ground, as they were walking from wilderness to promised land. And as they were transported once more out of Jordan back to Gilgal, and as they left those memorials, something was visibly different about them. Praise was found more often on their lips. They were singing. They were glad. They were hopeful. And somehow, their worship seemed deeper. As if they were now ready to face the giants again. And their children would see that and it would, uh, they would become curious and they would ask, Papa, Mama, what do these stones mean to you? What's that all about? What happened there? And Joshua says, then you shall let your children know. Tell them the story. Tell them the miracle. Tell them the message. Tell them about the God who did the miracle, who remained faithful, who was powerful for us. That they may fear the Lord and worship would blossom. That was what these memorials were all about. And you think about it, in our spiritual lives today, in our lives today, what are those spiritual memorials that can serve, that can help us in this way, that can, that can keep that message fresh in our hearts once more? Well, for me, one memorial that I can think of is this big, huge structure, the Discipleship Center. The Discipleship Center itself is a memorial. Think about it. You hear about Boksu and the other senior leaders tell you story after story of miracle after miracle of how God provided for us this building. Miraculously. Remember where we came from. Remember what we had at that time. How in the world could we have built this by ourselves? No. This building is not just a pile of rocks devoid of meaning and memory. This building for us is a memorial, a testament, a sign that points us to the God behind the miracle. To He who provides for His people. The Lord dried up the waters and we pass through. So every time the church faces a large giant, I recall as I sit there, as I park in the Discipleship Center, as I sit and worship, as I stand and talk to people, this building reminds me the message that God has sent to us, His people. He's faithful and true. He will provide. He will get us through. He will win it for us. It's a powerful memorial. But see, even this memorial is just on the periphery of our spiritual lives compared to the ones that are central to our faith. What's that? Well, if you look back at the Jordan River, you go back there and turn the clock several hundred years later. There was another man who comes along named John the Baptist. And he was also an instrument that God used to prepare his people anew 
to prepare them for something even greater than the promised land. It's to prepare his people for the promised king. The promised king who would come to establish the kingdom of God. This promised one that they called the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He also came doing miracles, did signs and wonders, healing and feeding, walking on water. And people kept asking more. They got hung up on his miracles that they failed to see the message. And as a last act, Jesus, before leaving his disciples on earth, as a last act, Jesus does the ultimate miracle for them. He goes to the cross and he dies. And in three days, he rose back to life, to glory. Amazing miracle, powerful, awesome, astonishing, wonderful. But what was the message? What was the message behind the miracle? And in fact, all of his miracles, the healing, the feeding, the walking, the rising, what was the message? The message of Jesus was evil is being overwhelmed by good. Sin is being defeated. Death has been overcome. The message of his miracles, the message of Jesus and miracles that were behind him, the message is the gospel message. That the king has come. And he's come to establish the kingdom of God. The message is the same God in the past who rescued Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. That same God has now come in the person of Jesus, performing signs and wonders. That Jesus is the king who will bring people from outside to inside the kingdom of God, who will rescue people from the pharaohs of sin into the promised land of rest, home. He's the king who will finally bring us out of our endless wilderness to rest, to land, to blessing. That's the gospel message. And that is what we cling to. That is the one that needs to be kept afresh in our hearts. And the, li- and, and the storms of life will come that, that, that will want to bury, that will snuff it out. What can keep that message fresh and flaming in us? In the Jordan River miracle, God said, set up the Gilgal memorials. Now Jesus establishes for us two important gospel memorials. You have baptism, you have communion. And these these two sacraments were to be a Gilgal memorial to the gospel miracles. They were to serve as memorials and reminders and teachers that encourage and remind and push us on to keep believing to keep trusting, to keep worshiping the God whose utter power and grace worked for us in Christ. And see, my fear is that as time goes on, 
we would come to see baptism and communion just as a pile of rocks, devoid of meaning and memory. That we would just go through the motions. But the Apostle Paul, in fact, gives a very serious warning against entering into them lightly. These are not just a splash of water, a sip of wine, and a bite of crackers. They were more than that. They were gospel memorials, pointers, reminders, teachers to the gospel message that is central to us. And therefore, see, when we, when we witness someone's baptism, or as we enter ourselves into baptism, or as we partake the Lord's communion, the bread and the wine, these gospel memorials, as we enter into them, the picture, the hope really is that we would enter into them solemnly and seriously. And you let, you let it bring up, resurface that core memory into your minds. Let it stir something deep in your hearts. And as you partake the bread and the wine, and you, as you see the waters of baptism, you look at it, but you look further than that. You let it transport you out of your seats from church back to Gethsemane and Golgotha. Let it transport you to the cross and the grave and the empty tomb, to the blood spilled, to the body broken, just for you. And see, as we leave, as we go back, to the rhythms of our life out of these memorials. Our prayer is that we would leave with something visibly different from us. The praise would be more often on our lips. We would be singing with glad and hopeful hearts. And that somehow our worship was deepened. And now we are ready to face the giants once again. The gospel fresh in our hearts once more. And so people around us, our children, they would see that. And they would ask, they would lean in. What do these rituals mean to you? What's with the water and the bread and the wine? Why do you seem so different after them? What happened? What's it about? Then you should let them know. You tell them the story, you tell them the message, you tell them the God behind the miracles. And you say to them, it's because the Lord is good and His word for us is salvation and His power is present and His promise forever. That's why I sing in the face of overwhelming giants. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that by your grace, you prepare us. Lord, how often in the past year were we unprepared and surprised and we leave failing, retreating from giants, Lord, we pray that in this new year, 
fix it upon our hearts, to prepare well our hearts. That we would lean on you no matter what, that we would trust you no matter what. No matter what giants we may face, Lord, we pray, assure our hearts. Lord, we pray that the message of the gospel will be kept fresh and alive and burning in us. Help us, Lord, to approach the communion and the baptism with more seriousness, with more reflective con contemplation, more prayerfully, Lord, more sincerely, and use those, Lord, by your Spirit to prepare us for the battles ahead. Thank you, Lord. You hear us, and we trust in your grace. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us the promised King. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us again for our online worship. I hope you and your family continue to be safe. God bless.